Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Morning Navigator, a daily newsletter written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. I think it's important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and it's hard to do that without understanding the markets. Now this is where the Morning Navigator fills a specific need for me. If you're looking for actionable trade ideas or simply to educate yourself about the markets, then the Morning Navigator will help you to do both. It's an interesting, informative, and amusing daily read. Now a subscription to the Morning Navigator normally costs $60 a month or $650 per year. However, my listeners can go to tgmacro.com, sign up for a free one-week trial, and apply the code ZUBY, Z-U-B-Y at checkout for a discount of either $10 off the $60 a month subscription or $100 off the $650 annual subscription. As you can infer, the annual subscription is a better deal. Either one is a win when it comes to understanding the global markets and managing your personal investments. So once again, you can sign up today for a free trial at tgmacro.com. tgmacro.com. Go check it out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on my friend Thor Holt, who is a professional life coach and also a corporate coach as well. So welcome to the show, Thor. How are you doing, man? Hey, Zuby. Pretty cool, man. All good. Awesome. You're out in the, the Scottish Highlands right now? Yeah, out in the hills. That's why I've grown this uh, woodsman beard for the winter. Okay. It's what you need for the temperatures. It was like minus two this morning. I had to scrape my pickup truck. Oh, okay. It was minus four this morning, and I live on the south coast, so if that's any consolation. Yeah, you've kicked my butt for weather there. <laughs> I should have made up a bigger, uh, bigger temperature drop. Yeah, 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 yeah man. Awesome, man. So I've done a real brief intro there, but uh, tell the people a little bit more about who you are. Cool. Well, the first thing uh, most people think when they hear my name, you said it real clear, but a lot of people think they've heard Paul or some other name. They just can't quite believe that some dude's dad dropped him in it 
and call them Thor. <laughs> but it really is my real name. And mm. uh, the other thing I've had is, is it your stripper name? And then when they... <laughs> what is your stripper name? I see you laughing about it. Yeah, exactly. What is my stripper name? Yeah. Um, I guess it would do. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not even an acting name. I did go to drama school. I was um, for a year in, in drama school in London. And I didn't know whether I mentioned this to you with your Nigerian heritage, but the, the most fun job I did, certainly when I was in London, was uh, Crime Watch. And the name of the episode was, I don't think they do it these days, it was Nigerian Scam. That was actually oh, the name of the episode that I was on. Oh, okay. And I had to chase this uh, Nigerian dude around London in his Mercedes. <laughs> and I was, in, I was playing an undercover detective called Andy. Oh, what? And okay. Yeah, so we, I had like the cameraman, the sound man in the car with me. Mm-hmm. And I was, they kept going, drive smoother, drive smoother. I'm trying to chase this Nigerian guy in the murk, and he was not, he was not hanging on. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I feel, um, like, we, I feel like we've jumped, jumped in sort of halfway here. So you still haven't told the people yeah. what you do yet. Apart from oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So I am an investor. I invest in small companies. I'm a coach. I guess most recently I'm, I've co-founded um, a business called hazakcoffee.com. Hazak spelt with a Q, so H-A-Z-A-Q. And that's kind of, what, what would you call it? It's a counter-woke uh, culture business, you could call it, um, mm. which stands up for a particular um, situation, set of people for persecuted Christians around the world. Um, yeah, so that kind of covers what I do now, though. I'm, I'm a coach. I've done all kinds of things over the years, man. In my 20s, I was a personal trainer, one of the one of the early ones in the city I was in then. There were just a handful of us, three or four of us. Uh, I used to work on the door for many years. I was a bouncer. Um, I was into mixed martial arts in those good old days. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, for now, I mean, I've worked on pitches in uh, MIT in Boston, mm-hmm. helped out with kind of tech team pitches there. And for my for my pains and all the travel, they, they made me an, an EIR, which is an entrepreneur in residence. Oh, nice. I didn't even know what the title meant when they, when they first gave it to me. Um, yeah, that kind of covers it. I still work on um, business pitches, uh, investor pitches, including a couple for my own uh, businesses. And yeah, that kind of covers it, I guess, at the moment. Awesome. So let's rewind a little bit and tell us a little bit more about where you're from and a little bit more about your life story. Hmm. So where did you grow up and where are you from? Well, one way into that is I once had an argument with Duncan Bannatyne on Twitter about this. Oh, okay. He was, <laughs> I've done, he I, was I, saying, I haven't done that yet. No, <laughs> it's not hard to do once you, can, once you can get him to reply. Okay. So what happened is he was away down the Amazon uh, what was he saying he was a way to do like to help get electricity to the to the indigenous people or something and I replied something like uh, Duncan electricity is not all it's cracked up to be and he instantly bit and like through the Twitter chat I could kind of hear his voice you know getting angry and said who the hell do you think you are you know electricity is important blah 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 so I went on to tell him that I was brought up without electricity certainly for the first few years and uh, without running water to begin with we had a well when did we get electricity? We had a, like an outdoor toilet. And basically I was born and brought up in the Shetland Islands, uh, okay. a little island. And I was actually in a little wooden hut, maybe 
to try to work out about four meters by five meters, I guess. And uh, my parents were hippies that moved up there to smoke dope in peace uh, in the early seventies. <laughs> <70s>. Okay. <laughs> and no, no cops, no police. Where we lived, just a tiny little island. Maybe twenty-five, thirty people there at the time. There's mm-hmm. probably five people there now. So the the school had four or five kids in it, and I just loved football, man. But you try playing football with like three boys, and two of them are hippie kids that aren't interested in football. So it's an intensely frustrating period of my life, but also a hell of a lot of freedom. Okay. I had my own motorbike to go to school on. We had access to guns. So yeah, it was a pretty pretty crazy freedom orientated upbringing, I would say. Okay, so you grew up yeah. in a like a little a little commune essentially. Uh, well, it started off as yeah, it, it was kind of like a commune, but it was spread out across the island. But there okay. were quite a few hippie families who'd moved up there, and. Yeah, I guess my little little friends to begin with were hippies. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you know, turn 11 and you go away to the kind of main school on the main islands of Shetland. And that was a culture shock because, you, you know, I had my very kind of English voice at the time, having been brought up with these other English hippie kids. And you're wearing your purple corduroy bell-bottom trousers. <laughs> and uh, suddenly you're in with all these Shetland kids who don't even consider themselves Scottish. They're like a breed apart little vikings okay and um yeah that was an interesting culture culture shock for me man in what way what what was that experience well just i guess it was back in the 80s and i'm sure they're a lot more civilized now but they weren't used to uh kids from well as they saw it from down south sooth as you were called they weren't used to (laughs) well they had some of them because the oil industry had moved there but i guess it was still seen a, a wee bit negatively put it that way Okay. So fair few fights and um partly it's kids, isn't it, being kids. Mm. They'll they'll find something to pick on. But yeah, I'd say it was a a, a re- kind of a living away from home, but not in a nice kind of boarding school environment. Um in a kind of lonely, I guess, not to get too too negative. But yeah, it was a probably a tough time as a kid looking back on it. Maybe okay. toughened me up. So what was it a boarding school then? Were you were you no, it was like or? a standard comprehensive school. Okay. But um So your your family so your family moved so you'd be closer to it or no. How, oh no? No man. Okay. That would have been good, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, they, they were still on the little island and I you know, it happened to all of us though. I had uh, two brothers and we all just you would move off the island mm. and go and live kind of thirty five miles away from home and you'd get home maybe every other weekend. Okay. So, so twice where, a month. Where did you live? just you could either go and live in the school hostel which was pretty tough and because my older brother had been bullied there my parents chose to put me in a like in what do they call it lodgings so you just go and stay with some random friends of theirs oh okay okay oh interesting no okay i haven't heard of that before because when you were saying (laughs) when you were saying it's it's on another island but it's not a boarding school i'm kind of like okay so no no it's just a standard comprehensive school Okay, and and how long were you how long were you on the Shetland Shetland Islands for? I guess I got away, escaped to university when I was seventeen, seventeen, mm-hmm. eighteen, seventeen. What am I now? Forty six this year. So yeah, thirty years ago, went away to Stirling University, and you know, still go back and visit, but I haven't been back to live. So yeah, a 
feels like a long time ago. So what's uh? I've never been in the Shetland Islands before, so I'm actually like quite quite curious about this. Let alone we've not seen the Shetland the uh, detective show. I don't even have a television, so. Uh... <laughs> oh, that was a bit I forgot to tell you about my upbringing, Zuby. Yeah, you said you had no electricity. We had no TV, man. No, but even once we got electricity, we had like a diesel generator that they put in in the end, mm. and there was no TV. We, kind of mum and dad's philosophy around it seemed to be that TV was destructive to your brain. Right. So there was no TV. And then when I left, by the time I left, when I was 11 or 12, they eventually got a TV. But oh, the reception okay. was poor and, yeah, it was right out on the sticks. So, yeah. Okay. So you went to Stirling University. And mm-hmm. what, what did you study there? The Scottish, the main Scottish subject of heavy drinking, partying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. So I did a history degree, and we had okay. like education units. So that was I was in some ways looking to to do a teaching qualification mm-hmm. at that stage. So there was education, history, and some economics and some religious studies as part of it. But it ended up being a, a single, like a straight honors history degree. Awesome. And so, yeah. what so what led you from there to? I mean, all, all these other paths. So we know what you what you do now in terms of the coaching and helping with the pitches and founding Hazak Coffee, which I want to get into a little bit more later on. But yeah, cool. uh, what was your what was your journey from there to where you are now? I guess when I was a youngster, I thought I always had this idea that I wanted to be a soldier of some kind, which looking back on it, I would have been an awful soldier, man. I'm too kind of freedom orientated. And I mm. genuinely think I would have struggled with the discipline if I'd ever got into any military force, you know? Sure. So I did, I applied for the Royal Marines and I did what they call a potential officer course. And I failed one of them when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And then I tried again when I was 18, when I was first at university and as far as I remember, you know, I wasn't given a piece of paper to say you passed, but they said to me, you know, you've achieved a standard where we could look at potentially getting you in, assuming you passed the next, you know, the medical and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, at that point, I thought I wanted a scholarship to go through university and I wasn't in the, you know, whatever the top percentage was to get a scholarship. So they said, well, you can come back after university. And um, yeah. As I say, probably a good thing, but by the time I finished university, my eyesight had failed to some degree, and I was kind of short-sighted. So that was it, early career crisis. What do you do? You're like 21 years old. You've just done your degree. You always thought you wanted to be a soldier of some kind, and yeah, I just didn't know where to go. I could either go back to Shetland, which kind of felt like a failure after yeah. a few years at uni, or... I could find something else to do. And I had a brother that lived in Aberdeen, which is, mm-hmm. we still is Europe's oil and gas capital. And he worked for an oil company at the time. So I went to hang out with him and I had some money saved up. And I used to, you know, I spent a lot of time at the gym then. I was really into fitness. I had the money. So I just partied, where, lived where the, the life of a, where of a young money? guy who's got time and money. Where did the money come from? Oh, I just had some savings had some money put aside. Not, I'm not talking hundreds of grand, but I had a few thousands saved and didn't have to do anything. So I did, I guess, what a lot of young guys would do when they're, when they've got that ability. I just partied, trained, and that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. And I soon realized how 
what a hopeless, purposeless existence that is. <laughs> so, uh, what made, I had you, to find, what made you realize that? Well, is there a specific moment? So, or? so depressing, man. Well, just waking up with a hangover and then getting your ass down to the gym again and it just going on week after week, you know, mm. even as a 21 year old, you soon realize that's pretty shallow. So I actually did something that looking back on it was probably was a, you know, a trans, like a transforming moment. My brother convinced me that he'd paid tax over the years. He had a pretty well-paid oil job. So he said, look, dude, you need to sign on. You should go on the dole. And at first I refused. So I don't need to go on the dole. I've got some money. He says, no, but I've paid my tax. You go on the dole. So I went and signed on. And that lasted maybe a week and a half, two weeks. And the feeling of being on the dole, signing on and getting unemployment benefit, Mm. was just debilitating mentally. So I just stopped going, stopped signing on, and I went and got myself a job. And the first job I actually got was a door job, like a door security job, a bouncer job. And okay. it was an unusual thing at that time. So we're talking 27 years, 26 years ago. And they gave us like full training. There was some ex-military guy who put us through a whole load of courses, uh, health and safety, first aid, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was a, a fun thing to do for, I did it for a few years. I mean, I didn't do it. It wasn't my full-time gig for a few years, but I did it because I enjoyed it. You get a social life, you get in some rumbles which i always enjoyed <laughs> oh, interesting. and uh yeah it was so yeah that's how that's how it kicked off okay after university that was the first thing that i actually got my teeth into okay and what was the what's the most interesting story from your time working on doors there's got to be some crazy. you mean one i can tell you <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i'm criminating uh, myself yeah 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 um hmm. well there was one time i i learned the value of uh, diplomacy. I was working in this venue and it was r- right at the end of the night and I was on my own in this particular part of the venue. It was a big club with multiple levels and there were three guys who were like kicking a bin along. And what I should have done is just let them kick the bin and then leave. But I couldn't help myself and I, I was polite, but I, I said something like, dudes, stop kicking the bin. Mm-hmm. And because there were three of them and only one of me, I uh, took a bit of a beating. And my other, the other guy who could have given me backup was like three floors away at the end of a radio. Um, yeah, so that was like an early formative experience where it made me question whether I should get involved in, in things. Um, mm. And I guess the kind of the, the, the kind of the mirror image opposite of that was, you know, maybe six or seven years later, I was a lot more experienced, probably a lot bigger, a lot better fighter, having done mixed martial arts for a number of years by then. And a similar situation happened. So this guy and his buddy were trying to get into a club and I was on my own. I had no radio. And the other guy was at the other end of the club and we were really short staffed. But I knew that this guy had been involved in a pretty bad kind of gang beating, including some guy getting um, sounds weird, but bitten, like they'd bitten uh, one of his ears off and they'd bottled him. And he'd end up having to drag himself under a car to get away. He was wow. a, a doorman, a fellow doorman friend of mine. Okay. But I knew this had happened and these two guys had been involved in it. So your brain goes back to that time when you got involved with those three guys and you were on your own and you got a beating. But these guys were significantly more uh, serious in terms of their capabilities, I guess. Mm. But again, I just couldn't help myself. And 
I just told them I wasn't letting them in and I told them why and I stood my ground and I can, even all those years later I'm still happy that I did that and they just walked away so <laughs> you win some you lose some yeah, yeah. so yeah okay again wow. that feels like so long ago <laughs> I guess it was that's probably nearly 20 years ago man yeah and wh- whereabouts was this this was in Aberdeen I was in Aberdeen yeah Aberdeen okay. city itself okay gotcha man yeah so after the um the work as a doorman what uh what came next after that well, yeah, it, within within a couple of months, actually, I I saw this article about this guy. I still remember his name. I don't remember the newspaper, but it was in a newspaper in the old days when we used to read newspapers. Mm-hmm. And um, this guy was called Richard, and he was a personal trainer in London. And he would go to like business people's offices, and he would train them. And at the time, I was hugely into the gym. I was into my fighting, and I just I had this kind of vision of me doing that. And so I went to the gym that, that I trained at most regularly, spoke to the owner of the gym, a guy called Gary. I said, what would it take for me to become an instructor or a personal trainer in your gym? So he told me what qualifications I needed and took some of the money I had saved, went down to London, did the qualifications, went back, got myself a position in that, in that gym and just started building up my own personal training uh, yeah, client base. And that went on for a few years, I guess, up until my late twenties, and yeah, it was it was pretty successful. I had a really good client retention rate, made good. a good living, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I think that and that kind of laid the basis for what I do now, Zuby, because one really fundamental lesson I learned, probably about halfway through that time, I realized I had a higher retention rate than some other trainers, and I I got interested in that, so I actually asked my clients just why do you keep training with me? Because some of these people would pay me, you know, like the equivalent of a mortgage every month. Mm. One or two of them were getting fatter, not slimmer. You know, they were getting in, <laughs> they were in worse shape. <laughs> I'd be like, well, why, why do you stay with me? Now, obviously you discuss nutrition with them and you tell them what the right things to do and you try to hold them accountable. But you know yeah. yourself, you can't force somebody to eat right and train right. You can't force them to. You can make them train right when they're with you, but you mm-hmm. can't when they're on their own. So what they said in different ways was, basically they stayed with me and kept paying the money because they felt that I cared. And the reason they felt that I cared about them was because I would listen to them. And that was, that was a pretty fundamental thing when I realized that, that like the power of paying attention to someone, okay. the power of really, yeah, really listening and really just, even if other people find someone tedious or boring, just getting past that and really listening and asking them questions to really find out what drives them and what's going on in their life. Mm. It's amazing. It's amazing where that can, where that can take you. Well, that was certainly my experience. So, yeah. Awesome. And that's still a big part of my work, you know, in, in, in business or pitch coaching or career coaching, it's hugely about um, listening. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, li- listening is one of those things that it is a skill and it is a skill that needs to be worked on. And it is something that, People can be bad at and people can be good at, despite the fact that on the surface, it sounds like you're not really doing anything. It's very passive. But as most people know, you know, when someone else is talking, the the natural inclination of a lot of people is is to not really listen and just to think of what they want to say next, right? Always be planning what they're going to say or how they're going to respond or what they want to get across rather than actually just sitting down and listening to what the other person is saying, but with like, like with a lot of things, because a lot of people are not good at it. 
I think if you are someone who's good at it, then it does make you stand out sort of quite, quite easily. And I think you experienced that in your time training. So can you tell us how you went from the transition of doing more of the physical personal coaching to more of what you've been doing more recently in terms of, I don't know whether you call it life coaching or corporate coaching, or I don't know how you personally market it. Well, one of the things that has definitely aided the transition is being a bit old and broken. <laughs> so being a personal trainer becomes hard when you've had old like fight injuries and operations and things. Sure. Um, yeah, what aided the transition? Well, one thing was kind of, I guess in my I could be wrong with the exact date, so I'll be approximate. In my late 20s, I, I, I experienced some coaching myself. And one of the kind of questions that this coach asked me was what I would do if I already had all the kind of monetary side of life handled mm. like if, if you had many 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 millions already what would you do and so just letting my i really ran with that question and i i let my brain go and one of the things that i thought i'd love to try is um acting i just it, it just for some reason i i really don't know why it really appealed to me but i wasn't so arrogant as to think i could just run off and become a professional actor at the drop of my idea mm-hmm. I got involved. I went along to a improvisation class and I can still remember just that first night that the buzz that it gave me just walking out into that space with somebody else and not knowing what was going to happen and just letting it go, just literally dancing in that moment with that other person, just the energy that came from that man. That was just, yeah, something else. And it's actually, I, I find there's a real equivalent in coaching when you're actually coaching someone and just letting it flow and you're not, you're not thinking you have to go through a certain process mm-hmm. and you're just listening with full attention. It's really, there's a really strong similarity there for me. So yeah, that was late 20s. And um, from there, I kind of got involved. One of the teachers was a director, a theater director, and she got me involved in various plays. And I did that, I guess, for a couple of years. Okay. Until I felt confident enough to uh, look at, try to get into some kind of more formal drama training. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, actually went to Sydney in Australia for a short while, went to a drama school there, but it, it was, well, I, I won't, I don't say anything that will be libelous, but basically there, there were some promises made by the school that I didn't really feel they lived up to. So anyway, I ended up back in London at drama school and doing okay. kind of a postgrad course for a year. Uh, I guess that would have been 2002. So, yeah. So that was kind of the turning point that started moving me from the physical more into a a performance space, you could say, because sure. I still use a lot of that. I mean, I still do bits and pieces of acting. I still get paid to act and okay. to, to work with scripts and things. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the transition point, I guess, in my late 20s. Okay. And in terms of acting, I mean, where, where did that lead to? What kind of things did you get involved in? <sighs> Well, there was that crime watch thing. That was that was okay. while I was still in London. Okay. Besides <laughs> the Nigerian scam. What kind of Nigerians in Mercedes? The kind of hijinks you get involved acting. Ah, oh, I mean, the first thing to bear in mind with acting. I remember sitting at an acting audition in Glasgow. I was going for a commercial audition, and there was this guy there, and he was telling me how much he was making because I asked him, and and he was explaining to me that he'd been doing it for maybe ten years, and he felt his from his experience, a successful actor would get one in 10 jobs. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, I'm doing pretty well because I was kind of getting one in eight at the time. So you maybe get paid two or 3,000 pounds to do a commercial. You filmed it just for the morning. 
Mm-hmm. And if you were to tell your buddies, oh, I got paid three grand for my morning's work, they think, wow, that's six grand a day, day rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but if you've done 10 auditions, you know, and you've had to travel for all the auditions and you've maybe prepared for all those auditions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the, the background context to the, to the acting lifestyle. Um, kind of one of the more, the more memorable ones was actually an audition. I, I went for, you'll have heard of Iron Brew. Made in Scotland, feet oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 For any Americans listening, hopefully your uh, your diabetes has been saved by, by not drinking this. <laughs> um, I went for a, I was up for an Iron Brew advert, and it was for a a guy called Raúl, who was meant to be kind of Hispanic of some kind. And I'd actually had kind of Spanish accent lessons from somebody for a couple of weeks, and what I wanted was somebody really sleazy. Okay. I went out with my with my new wife, and I found these uh, swimming trunks. We had to go to the audition in trunks, right? Because it was going to be poolside this advert, and we needed trunks that would make me look especially sleazy. So we ended up finding these pink, uh, like budgie smuggler skin tight swimming trunks with stud written across the top, the oh, front gosh. of them. Like, yeah, exactly. So I turned up at this audition. It was in Glasgow again, actually, and it was peeing down with rain. It was like November, freezing cold. <laughs> Now, obviously, it wasn't an outdoor audition, but yeah, yeah. you're still you're sitting in the waiting room in these ridiculous pants, right? And then you get called through, and there was a, a how can we put this? A very attractive young lady, casting director called okay. Carleen Crawford. She was <laughs> she was so hot that she was often in like Scotland's hottest bachelorette or whatever. In, in the papers, you know? So okay. she cast like Ken Loach's films and everything. So she's really you know in the business, well known. So she sat there at the end of the room. And I look to my left, and there's these other real hot babes sat in bikinis on the floor, right? Because the idea <laughs> is you're poolside, and I have yeah, to do this. I'm not even going to try and do it because it was so many years ago. And I do my bit, and you have to strut as well. You've got to, like, strut around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it was just the most humiliating because she, she just started laughing, right? And I'm like, <laughs> is she laughing at my budgie smugglers? Oh, gosh. And she's like, oh, girls, he's not going to get it, is it? Is he? he? He looks, now, believe this or not, with my beard, you maybe would not think this, and I can't really see it, but she said this. She said, he's not going to get it. He looks too much like Christian Bale. And I thought, well, there's the kiss of death to my fledgling acting career. <laughs> uh, I look like some guy who's already mega famous. I've got zero chance apart from as a, a lookalike in a, in a pub or something. So anyway. Christian Bale. I, I must say, I, yeah. I don't see it. I don't know if it is the beard. I don't see but... it either, but she's a casting director, man, so she yeah. can see things we can't. I don't know. I just oh, don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was just, maybe it was the trunks. Maybe she'd seen him in pink stud trunks before. Yeah, I don't know. Probably, probably something, that, uh, something else to the story there. N- needless to say, I didn't get the role. And it oh. actually went, I believe, to a South African actor. But it's a really good advert. It's uh, Is it on Raul YouTube? bouncing up and down. Yeah, you'll get it on YouTube. You'll oh, really? get, you'll, actually, that reminds me. There's, a, there's one of me playing a, a waiter you'll find on YouTube. Oh, okay. Uh, S1 Jobs. If you just put in S1 Jobs Chef. S1 jobs, you'll me, chef. You'll see me walk on and say, how are we doing, chef? And the chef starts singing. Okay. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. There was like, uh, there was one play I got involved in. It was actually the life of Christ. And I was up for the part of Jesus. And what part did I get? Begins with a J. Judas. As a good Christian man. <laughs> yes, man, yes. <laughs> so the thing about Judas was, though, he oh, was gosh. understudying for Jesus. Okay. So I had to know the whole play. So I had to know the Bible, basically. And this is a professional thing. I got paid a few grand for this. Uh, mm-hmm. But Jesus didn't have the 
he didn't have the good manners to get sick. So I never got to actually be Jesus, you know, for real. But I had mm. to know his whole role and my whole role. In other words, I knew the whole play. So it was 80 pages of script, 80 yeah. pages of A4 in my head. Wow. Now, going, for the role of Ju- going for the role of Jesus and ending up as Judas, it's a bit of a shame. <laughs> well, a bit of a maybe, there's maybe something to this, but we, <laughs> we don't want to get into the deep metaphoric side yeah. of this, dude. <laughs> That's some, that's some many, many an ex would agree that that is a suitable, <laughs> suitable name for me. Oh gosh, man! Yeah, awesome. So, so moving on now. I mean, um, tell us a little bit more about the about the coffee company that you founded, Hazak Coffee. So, what's the story behind it, and what was your reason for wanting to do it? Well, I guess I'm just I'm one of these guys that feels he has to stand up, stand up to things sometimes, you know. I'm a kind of free free speech, free expression extremist. Uh, I just think, yeah, you got to say what you say what you think. Uh, what's the oh so well? What really brought this thing to my attention, right? Was uh, I met a, a barista, a Pakistani barista, and um, two or three years ago now, and he, I got to know him a bit. He was a lovely guy, and he. Uh, was facing extradition from the UK back to Pakistan. And um, one of his relatives, I'll be careful what I'm saying, so that he couldn't be worked out from this story. But basically, one of his relatives had been murdered in Pakistan, and him and his other relative had managed to escape and come to the UK, and they were Pakistani Christians. And one of the reasons that he felt, the way he explained it to me is, the legal system in Pakistan is based on Sharia law, and he, he was, as a Christian, wouldn't get the same certainly his understanding of it wouldn't get the same um, uh, legal protection as if he had been a Muslim. And it just got me interested in the topic and I started kind of researching it. And the more I looked into it, how Christians are treated in various countries around the world, the more I thought it was interesting that it wasn't kind of out there in the media more. So I've got loads of Christian friends. I started bringing it up with them. And what what I found, man, was that most of them just, seemed to feel really awkward about it and didn't want to talk about it at all. Mm. And that made me dig even deeper. And I guess the, the further I, the deeper I got, the more I started feeling like I want to do something about it. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of what got me initially interested, I guess. Why do you think that is? Why do you think one that there's not that much media coverage about it in the Western world, which is um, in terms of the history, you know, Western countries are, somewhat founded on Christianity. Hmm. So why do you think it is that these countries and the media turns a blind eye to it to some degree? And also, why do you think that those Christians you spoke to, you said that they were uncomfortable even to, to talk about it openly? And why, why do you think that is? I, I guess just on the, for both groups, the media and for Christians, I guess it's, it's the whole kind of being embarrassed of our history thing. And, you know, we're, uh, I don't know how it's such a big, it's such a big uh, situation to cover. I'm not sure really where to start from, other than to say we're we're kind of seem to be encouraged to be ashamed of our own history. So, including the Judeo-Christian um, kind of underpinning in terms of values mm. that, that we experience here in the UK uh, as kind of the fundamental underpinnings of our society. That's that's kind of downplayed. So, I think that's maybe the roots of it. 
I wouldn't, it's not fair to say the media don't talk about it at all. I think it's just treated in an understated way. I think that's what I would say. I'm not going to say they don't touch it at all. But in terms of Christians, the conversations I've had, I think people are just a bit embarrassed or they're, they're nervous of being politically incorrect if they have to talk about how can, but how can that be forces are that are kind of doing it in the first place, I guess. Yeah. But how, I mean, how can that be politically incorrect? I mean, people are very willing, able to, you know, talk about any other group being persecuted regardless of Mm. whether that's a different religion or Mm. um, a certain gender women or um, LGBT people or whatever the case may be. It seems like people are quite happy to talk about more than happy to talk about all these other ones, right? People go out on the street and shout from, from the rooftops. Mm. But given that, um, I mean, I think that Christians are the most, persecuted group around the world in terms of total numbers certainly in terms yeah. of of religion and faith um yet number one i don't think that a lot of people would even be aware of that um maybe because it's not the case here in the uk or in america or something like that that's that's the majority um but if you go to africa asia lots of other places around the world then it's um it's a real big problem so i i am myself sort of curious about why that is and even digging deeper into what you said before this whole idea of people being ashamed of i don't know western history or judeo-christian values or something like that i've that's something i've noticed myself there is this weird self-flagellation thing that people that a lot of people seem to do in the western world which is one it's one it's relatively new i don't think that's a sort of i don't think that's a thing that's been going on for ages it seems like it's come to prominence more in the last five to 10 years. Yeah, definitely. So wh- again, why, why do you think that is? Do you have any, any theories about it? Is it just the education system? Is it people not really understanding? The- I think, well, what, one thing would be if, if, if it comes up in a conversation, for, for example, if I'm talking about Pakistani Christians, then quite obviously um, on the other side of that are going to be Pakistani Muslims mm-hmm. and people are afraid to be critical of Islam. Now, why that is, I mean, there are good, I mean, yeah, so I think that's one that's one thing. So a Christian in this country is gonna feel that that might be as the cult as the kind of our society would say, they would feel that that might be racist or that might be perceived as being racist. So, you know, and everyone knows that's the worst thing you can be these days. It's better to be a pedophile than a racist, do you know what I mean? So I think that's that's at the root of it hugely. And I also as kind of often most of my Christian friends are, are white Christians, I guess, because of mm-hmm. where I live. So I, I guess also in their subconscious, they sort of think of Christianity as white. So mm-hmm. if you're standing up for persecuted Christians, you're standing up for for persecuted versions of them. Maybe maybe that I'm kind of guessing here. I'm 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 thinking maybe yeah, maybe you, that's you, part of it. I don't no, know. No, I think I think it maybe is part of it. But again, I I find this weird, right? Because this is something that. I've I've traveled to a lot of different places. Of course, I, I grew up in the Middle East. My family background is originally from Nigeria. And I have noticed this uniquely weird modern Western thing of a little bit of I don't know if it, I don't know if it's guilt. I don't know if it's mm. to some people it almost seems like some degree of, of self-hatred, which is very strange. That is something I, I sort of see. Like, you know, you have these um I don't know, woke white people who are always almost apologizing for being white. And I'm kind of yeah, like, we did slavery, man. So it was us. We done it. it uh, uh, <laughs> All of it. 
Yeah, really, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of um. To anyone who's not aware of the history of slavery, let's just say that it wasn't unique to any one uh, group of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it is weird. I I, I myself try to get my head around this because I've been experiencing this a lot over the last week, where there have been all these conversations online and offline about this concept of uh, white privilege, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been, <laughs> I, I'm always on the receiving end of a text for saying that it's a garbage concept and that it's divisive and that it's bunk and that by definition, it, the concept in itself is somewhat racist. It's also just highly inaccurate. I mean, you yourself are saying you grew up in a place with no electricity, <laughs> right? So, so this whole idea, I'm just kind of like, wait, this is, it, this is such a, it's such a myopic view. Of yeah, like your your dad, world. who was a doctor, if I remember rightly. Yeah. So your dad was like super bright, <laughs> doctor, kicked ass, traveled around the world, managed to be able to send his son to a really good school and good university. And and you are suffering because of my white privilege, having been born in a wooden shack. Yeah. I'm brought up with a, with no flushing toilet to begin with and no power. Yeah. But I'm I'm privileged. I had this conversation with an actor friend who was talking about white privilege and I just told her okay. a, a little bit about my upbringing and she was laughing and just going, "Oh my god, I I just I didn't know that about you Thor." And then she was like, "Thanks for making me really think about this idea of privilege." She was actually running a theater in the USA. Oh, okay. She just took it as read that because she was white and from Sweden that she had mm. this privilege and I was like, "Well, maybe you do. I don't know enough about your upbringing to know yeah, but yeah. But really? I mean, yeah, but it's not, it's not inextricably tied to one's skin color. Like, I'm not, I'm not denying that some forms of privilege certainly exist. Being born in the Western world is a big one to begin with. Yeah, for sure. Right? I'll take that one. I'll take, I'll take that on the chin. Yes. Being in the Western world and having no flushing toilet and no power is probably privileged compared to somewhere. But I've been to India and things and they got plenty of flushing toilets, dude. Yeah, I, I just find that whole, it's such an odd conversation. I, I find it especially weird when people get incredibly angry and hostile towards me for questioning this concept, which nobody had even heard of 10 years mm-hmm. ago, right? The term itself was only coined in 1989, and it was just coined by one feminist woman who mm-hmm. was feeling a bit guilty about being white and being well-off. So she wrote this paper, which coined the term white privilege, and all of a sudden, in 2020, it's it's become some some religion, and even questioning the doctrine of it gets you gets you labeled and attacked and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, it's a phase that will sort of pass as many. Of well, these hopefully, but it feels a bit like a hockey stick, like it's accelerating <laughs> upwards. I it's I, I agree with you. I think it actually is a it is racist. It's a bit like the it assumption is. that anyone that voted for Brexit was like white gammon. <laughs> you know, uh, thug, because I'll give you an example. I have a yeah. personal example. I was working with a guy who was a, uh, a Turkish Muslim oil and gas engineer. Mm-hmm. And we were, we did a lot of work together. We were working, we were, we'd sit in a public venue though, like a cafe. And we were working on some, I was helping him get a new role, like a career role. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was after the oil and gas downturn. And it was just, just around the time of the vote. So what, June, 2016, Mm. And on one of our last sessions together, we started talking about Brexit and he went all kind of quiet <laughs> and he'd been happy to talk about all kinds of personal stuff to do with his family and his work and all kinds of things. And, and, he, and he didn't want to address this topic of Brexit. And then once we got out in the car park, he was about to get in his car and he said, well, which way are you voting? And I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> I guess I made an assumption that he'd yeah, be yeah. voting Remain. 
And I said, oh, you go first. And he said, oh, I'm voting Brexit. And he started explaining why. Mm. And it really made me think, because I have obviously lots of white friends, and most of them, the ones that would speak about it, were voting Remain, you see? Mm. So I ended up, I actually wrote a film script off the back of this. And um, the, the film was called Brexit Bastards. Okay, because this was actually a white friend of mine, an Australian, who used that very phrase in a text. We had this string of text message conversations about Brexit. And and I realized people are making these huge assumptions about who's voting what. So anyway, in my script, um, a, um, an oil and, a Muslim oil and gas engineer is stuck in a lift with this gay guy. And one of, they're both going to come out to each other. And it's a gentle comedy. And this thing actually okay. ended up getting made. I didn't make the film. Um, mm-hmm. professional people made it but I wrote it and it um, premiered at the Barbican Theatre in London oh, cool. in 2017 at Claire Fox's event you know the Battle of Ideas yeah, yeah, you yeah. heard of that yeah I yeah. have and we had a full house and I got to this is the only time I've ever written something that's been on in front of that kind of audience I've done little bits and pieces but yeah it was exploring this idea that we make these assumptions about people because of their colour or because mm-hmm. they're gay we assume they'll vote a certain way and I've I, I can't quite get past the idea that that is more racist <laughs> in the case of assuming that a black or a brown person would vote a certain way i mean why the f- dude I'm, I'm, why the f should they you know what dude, i mean it's just I, the weirdest I, idea i fight this battle all the time like i don't even yeah. know i find myself constantly having to explain things and i'm like why do i even have to explain this right yeah. like why why would you i i don't like <laughs> it, it's it's weird it's like society moved on from all of these assumptions and prejudices based on race and sex and sexuality and whatnot right it's like we we largely move beyond this and then it's just regressed in the last few years where all of a sudden now people will be like oh but you're a black guy so you should think this or you're supposed to think that and i'm like wait hang on a second like my entire life i've never (laughs) right i've never based my thinking for myself or anybody else or what i think anybody else is going to believe I don't, I don't base it on these factors. And in fact, yeah. to do so by definition is prejudice, is racist, is sexist, is whatever thing it's, you like. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it's, that's what it is. That's why I have a problem with a concept like white privilege because you're, you're inextricably linking the concept with being white, with being privileged. Mm-hmm. It would be as dumb and as foolish as assuming that everyone who's black is poor or assuming everybody who is Asian is this or everyone who's Jewish is that it's, it's like wh- whether this is a, whether it's a, a positive connotation or a negative connotation, you're still prejudging somebody purely based on their skin color hmm. is, uh, you know, most people in a normal world generally agree. <laughs> there is, there is one thing you can generalize on though. What's that? Black dudes are better at basketball. There ain't no argument there. Come on. <laughs> that's the one generalization you're surely allowed to make. You seen there's some picture going around. It might just be a silly meme, but I saw a picture of it was like the Ireland basketball team. And it was like, I don't know, one white dude. Yeah. In Ireland, that's brilliant. I don't like I said, I don't know if it's a real picture, so don't you, don't you anyone won't quote see me too, on that one. You won't see too many brothers on the swimming team or the skiing team though. Well, what, what's the movie? Oh, Cool Runnings. Yeah, Cool even that, Runnings. That, that was, was that Bob, Jamaican that was bobsledding, anyway. But yeah, I think I that might just have been a that might just have been a movie. <laughs> oh, no, no was I think it, I, it was it was story? it was based on a true story. Oh. But um, yeah, you're you're not going to get any uh, any any black dudes winning Olympic swimming medals or figure skating medals anytime. 
soon. For sure. I mean, we, the thing is, though, I think what we might be falling into here, Zuby, is we start talking about we're kind of having a bit of a bitch and a moan about the situation. <laughs> and I guess that's partly what I was trying to do, actually, with Hazak Coffee and what my mm. co-founder, Matthew, what we're trying to do is kind of gently push back, but we're trying to push back in a with a with a business model instead of just complaining or just setting up another, mm. I don't know what we could have done, like a, an online magazine or something try to kind of push back against the culture and go really like i wonder if there's maybe a quiet you know a silent majority who actually might agree with us if we push this way because so many of the big corporations are going you know gillette direction work direction oh boy. so that's really it's kind of a test for us too we we kind of think that that might be the case that mm-hmm. actually if you give people opportunity to spend their opinion when they're too scared to state their opinion online certainly or in public situations um yeah, we think that, that that it might actually be satisfying for people to be able to spend their money on something that makes a little bit of a political statement or a cultural statement rather than political. Mm. Because actually myself and my co-founder don't vote for the same political party, but we do both believe in free expression. Yeah. And that's so important, man. That has got to be important that anyone, left, right, indifferent, can say and joke about and believe pretty much whatever they want. I mean, to me, I don't know what you think, but to me, the only baseline where when you go below it, you should be in trouble is if you are literally trying to instigate violence. Other than that, let the chips fall where they may and let the best ideas win through. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm pretty much with you on being a, pretty close to being a free speech absolutist with the only exceptions being the, the obvious ones that I think you've already um, already touched upon. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean... There's one thing people don't understand, you know, people think that by supporting free speech and by opposing censorship or opposing deplatforming on all that kind of stuff, people think that you have some people who misunderstand this concept or principle, or they at least pretend like they do. They think that that means that you're defending every idea that exists. And it's like, no, you're not defending every idea. But if you want to live in what's supposed to be a relatively free society with actual, you know, liberalist values, then you have to understand that people are free to express themselves. People are free to potentially say things that someone or someone else may find offensive or may find distasteful or whatever. It's not saying I agree with everything. I mean, you know, I don't agree with everything I say, let alone everything. everything that everyone else says. I'm going to listen back to this podcast and be like, what were you saying there, Thor? I don't agree with that. What's the, there's an Oscar Wilde quote that, that, you know, that famous neo-Nazi Oscar Wilde, the uh, gay, gay writer, Mm. something like an idea that is not dangerous, isn't worthy of being called an idea at all. Like if you're not, if you're not a bit edgy, then, then what's the point? Do you know what I mean? So if everyone just says all the same bland things and everyone Mm. has to agree that diversity is a strength, whatever the mantra happens to be, well, where does that lead you? I mean, you can feed any crap into that sausage machine and out out the other end come all these happy sausages all singing the same tune. Yeah, which isn't really diverse, is it? Well, that's always the, that's no. the funny part. That's the funny just one exp- Yeah, go ahead. Oops, sorry. Well, I had this one. So part of my work, I'll work with people on presentation impact, for example. And I was working with this really senior guy in a multi- multinational company and he's like top level C-suite executive. And I was asking him what was the challenge that he was trying to overcome that he, he wanted my help with. And one of his major challenges was he was presenting at this um, kind of town hall event for the whole company in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. And 
one of his biggest problems was all these different languages, all these different cultures, all these different people from all over the world were going to be there. And he found it, he tried it before and he found it really hard to get through to people, to communicate with everything. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm writing all this down. And then a little bit later on, I'm like, okay, so we started working on like the core messaging of this presentation. Like what was the main point he wanted to get across? And he literally said to me, well, obviously I want, the first thing I want to get across is that diversity is our strength. And I just started <laughs> laughing. I was like, you, and part of my job, you know, the thing people pay me for is to just call out their BS, whatever it is. And I just said, dude, I'm so, I've just got to stop you right there. You've literally just told me that your biggest challenge is your diversity of people from all over the world. You're now mm. telling me your core message is that diversity is your strength. <laughs> and he kind of started laughing and then he was, he was like, yeah, but I, I do have to say that. I'm like, okay, cool, right. We'll find a way for you to say that if you really have to say that. Yeah, that's funny. So yeah, I mean, people see the emperor's new clothes sometimes with whatever mm. it is, but, but do they want to risk their 200 grand a year job and pension and all that stuff? Yeah. Well, probably not. A... And I guess, I guess I can't blame them. You know, they've got families. And... Mm. But that's how you get that, that creeping authoritarianism creeping in, which has been happening for the past, uh, past many years. You know, nobody, wa- nobody wants to speak up. People don't want to be the... The nail, the nail that sticks out that gets the hammer, or you know, so true. It's like everyone. Cut. You ever had that conversation with people like, would you, would you have gone back and killed baby Hitler? Or mm. the other one is, um, you know, why? How did the Germans let that happen? Like, mm. I can't believe it. Like, if I'd have been there, I'd have fought. I'd have done this, done that. And you're just like, like no, you would have been you? a Nazi. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, would you like if the fire alarm goes off, in, like in a in public building, do you instantly get up and start trying to clear everyone out? No, you kind of go. You look around to see what everyone else is doing, don't you? Mm. you? You don't have the balls to even act on a fire alarm that it would be completely legitimate for you to help get everyone out. You, you wouldn't even do that. So yeah. you'd have stood up and fought against the Nazis and risked torture and your family being taken to a concentration camp? Of course you would. Yeah. So it's not easy. I'm not, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not trying to say that I would necessarily do that either. I'm just saying it's hard, isn't it? When everyone's going in one direction, mm. it's, it's hard, man. It's hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm blessed in that I don't find it too difficult to do. I quite enjoy it. But uh, I think you'd have, been, you'd have been in an underground <laughs> cell fighting the SS. I think you I, would have been Zuby. I, I definitely would. I don't think I would have had a, had a flipping choice, man. Like I, I think uh, I'm like, these guys are definitely not going to be on my side. So <laughs> that's, that's probably true. Yeah, I, I, like, like, I, I really resonate with anyone that has the balls to kind of try and stand up to it. And one of the people who I've recently got involved with and, and I'm, giving a little bit of help behind the scenes is toby young and he's setting okay, up yeah, the yeah. uh the free speech union mm-hmm. so i don't I, I shouldn't talk too much about it because it's toby's thing and it's launching pretty soon like february i believe but what i love about that is he's he's taking i guess a bit of a concept of the left i.e unions mm. but really genuinely he he plans for the union to support anyone in the creative space to begin with but anyone's free speech again you can be left right it is not created for right-wingers and mm. how i guess the left have kind of let the libertarians and the right have the issue of free speech that to me is really fascinating they've let that go yeah yeah they've they've let a lot of the good ideas go to the the right inverted commas mm. if you're if you're being honest um but yeah man i'm just looking i'm just looking at the time is there um what have, what have you got coming up coming up this year is there anything that people should be looking out for um yeah, well, there's something coming up that I'm hoping people are going to be looking out for because I'm working on something called the Mission Accelerator with a very cool coach that I know. 
So that'll be coming up in the first quarter of the year. <laughs> Basically encouraging people to stop spinning their wheels down internet sinkholes or whatever we, we get sucked into these days and actually living a meaningful, purposeful life. So that'll be like a closed door, personal and or business, whatever the thing is that you want to achieve, accelerator to hold people's feet to the fire, hold them accountable and get them involved in a kind of a energetic, man-centered not ashamed to say that it's, it's designed for for young to middle-aged men mm-hmm. and uh yeah just to drive some real action and results it's something i already do yeah as you said in the corporate world and i've done with startups you know from mit in boston to i do uh, a lot of work with accelerator uh, program here in in aberdeen so yeah it's kind of bringing that mindset and also the creative entrepreneur mindset of the the other coach involved in the in the mission accelerator who is a He's a world champion deadlifter, actually. Have you mm. have you heard of him? He's called Zuby. <laughs> yeah, he identifies as a woman sometimes. Yeah, so we, we can we can stop being cryptic. Yeah. So Thor and I are working on uh, this mission accelerator program, which is going to be coming out later on in the year. So um, we will have more info about that coming in the future. So absolutely stay tuned to it because we think it's going to help a lot of people out. Before we go, uh, where can people find you online? The best place to get me and the one social media that I really interact on is the professional networking site LinkedIn, which I guess everyone will have heard of. So just my name, Thor Holt, T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T. Just look me up, connect with me, tell me you heard me on Zuby's show and uh, be delighted to connect and you can direct message me there, get in contact that way. Awesome. Thor, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always, bro. Cool, man. Speak to you soon. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.